Heavenly Father, we very much need to hear from you this morning and not human being. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would put your words in my mouth so that your words would enter into the hearts of the listeners. We ask for an anointing that is on all of us in order that the things that you have to say will be revelation and life-changing. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to turn to Hebrews 12, uh, beginning in verse 18. Uh, customarily, when I start teaching or preaching, I always start by reading the passage, preferably one that will more or less uh, summarize everything we're going to talk about. Beginning in verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and heavenly Jerusalem and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. You are enrolled in heaven and to God and the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous made the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now what we've been seeing as Gary has been taking us through a New Testament Old Testament survey, excuse me. What we've been seeing is recently uh, the Jews have been delivered. Israel has been delivered from Egypt. The Passover, as Don has pointed out and which Gary pointed out last time, the Passover is a picture of the atoning sacrifice of Christ in that the blood of the lamb was placed on the doorposts. Uh, and the people that were within that, door, that house, the angel of death, when he saw the blood, passed over. Uh, he didn't notice whether there was a good Jew or a bad Jew inside the house. If he saw the blood, he passed over. Incidentally, very quickly, I had lunch one time with a rabbinical student who told me that in Egypt, many Egyptians by the time of the Passover had come to believe in Jesus, uh, not Jesus, but in God, in Yahweh. And they placed their oldest, uh, their firstborn in the houses of the Jews, and they were saved as well and delivered uh, from death. Now, what we have seen is that uh, Israel has now passed through the Red Sea. They have been delivered uh, from the uh, pursuit of the Egyptian army, again, miraculously. And having come out of the Red Sea, they have now passed into a wilderness. Uh, and by wilderness, what we mean is desert, uh, arid very little water, if any, very little food resources. Um, the desert uh, that they have passed into uh, is moving them to the direction of what, in a sense, is a climax. It is moving them uh, toward Mount Sinai. Now, what they have seen thus far 
is God's miraculous provision uh, through the various miracles, if you will, that he has actually uh, performed on their behalf, beginning in Egypt and coming up past the Red Sea. You see amazing miracles. But even as they enter into the desert areas around Sinai, they are going to continue to see God's grace through his miracles. In other words, in a sense, what they are seeing is God's love being demonstrated on their behalf. In Exodus 15, uh, starting in verse 22, uh, they move into an area of the wilderness called the Wilderness of Shur, and that's S-H-U-R. And in the Wilderness of Shur, uh, they discover that the waters there are bitter. And the Jews do what we all do when things are wrong and we don't go the way we want them. They grumble. But Moses does what you need to do, and that is he prays and cries out to God. And God said, all right, take a log and put it in the waters, which he did in obedience to what God told him. And the waters became sweet. I don't recommend you do that unless God has told you to do that. Uh, But Moses, in obedience, put the log in the water, and the waters became sweet. Then in Exodus, and there you see another miraculous uh, provision that the Lord is doing. In Exodus 16, they enter into an area called the wilderness of sin, S-I-N, sin. Uh, And there they found very little uh, provision for food, if any. And so they... What did they do? Grumbled, okay. And Moses cried out to God. Uh, And God gave them food. First he gave them quail initially. But the next morning they found the whole area covered in a thin white, uh, what was really bread. Uh, They found this thin white substance all across the area. Uh, And it was edible. And what it was, they looked at it and they said, what is it? Manna in Hebrew means, what is it? And so it became known as the manna from God. In other words, it was bread from heaven that they lived on. And they lived on the bread of manna for 40 years. Each day, they were provided with enough manna to survive from day to day. Uh, and I don't. And God is still acting that way with us. Incidentally, if you haven't discovered that, uh, He is protecting you and providing for you on a daily basis. Now, uh, what's interesting about manna is that there is a picture uh, in the New Testament uh, of manna, and that picture uh, can be seen in John, uh, beginning in John six thirty one. Uh, the people are talking with Jesus, and they say um, in verse 31, Our fathers ate manna <clears throat> in the wilderness, as it is written. Uh, he, gave, uh, he gave them bread out of heaven. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread <clears throat> excuse me, out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. 
Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life who comes to me. He who comes to me will not hunger, he will, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And then turning over to verse 51, also in John 6, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, in a real sense, folks, symbolically, the manna in the wilderness is a picture of the true bread of life who is available daily and continually. Then they move, the Jewish people, people, uh, move from the area of the wilderness of sin and they move into another area uh, in the in the desert in Exodus 17, and in uh, Exodus 17, 1 through 17, they discover there is no water in that area. They had too much water at the Red Sea. Now they have no water, and so what do they do? Grumble, of course, what we all do. Uh, and Moses cries out to God, and God says to Moses, "All right, I want you to take uh, take your staff." And I want you to strike a particular rock. And when you strike that rock, uh, then water will flow out of the rock. So Moses does that. And as God said, what happened is water flows out of the rock. So their thirst was quenched. And in a sense, it was the water of life. Now, let me suggest to you that living a running water in the Old Testament is oftentimes symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus was the living bread, we have the same thing with the Holy Spirit. In John 7, beginning in verse 37, he says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from him, uh, in innermost, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke of the Spirit when those who believed in him were to, which those, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let me suggest something to you. First we have in the wilderness of sin the living bread from heaven. Then following that, we have the living water that quenches thirst. Let me say that Passover is a picture of the atonement. But walking in the wilderness, as the Jews did for 40 years, is a picture of the Christian life. Because this world is a wilderness. When man sinned, He was thrown out of Eden. He was driven out of Eden. And the world under sin and the devil has become a wilderness. And so when we follow Jesus, we follow the path that the prophet says, uh, my voice crying out of the wilderness, make way the, the path of the Lord. That path of the Lord is a path that takes us through the wilderness. And we desperately have to have the living word and the living water as we tread that path, following him through the wilderness. Uh, And that's an interesting 
correspondence from the Old Testament. The Old Testament and the New Testament, folks, are inextricably intertwined. They are not two separate books. They are the beginning in the Old Testament and the completion is in the New Testament. And you see Jesus everywhere and you see God everywhere in the Old Testament. Okay, now, um, then in uh, chapter 18 of Exodus, Moses is overwhelmed and Jethro with his responsibility, his father-in-law says, you need to divide everybody into groups and then place people over them. And that way you can delegate the responsibility. So he's doing that in getting us ready to go to Sinai. All right, now what happens is that at, in Exodus 19, uh, they come into the wilderness of, the, of Sinai, and now they are approaching Mount Sinai. Now Israel up to now has seen the marvelous works uh, of what God's grace has, has performed for them. They have seen what God does. Now at Sinai, they are about to see who God is. They are about to glimpse a little uh, of the glory of God. And so the people began to gather before Mount Sinai, and the Lord speaks to Moses beginning in verse of chapter 19, beginning in verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of uh, told the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord also said to Moses, "Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai on the sight in the sight of all the people." So why is God doing that? Uh, and you'll see that He says. Um, uh, then you, verse 12, then you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the border shall surely be put to death. Why is he doing that? Because sinful flesh may not come into the presence of a holy God. That's why he's doing it. Now, Exodus 19 is the beginning of the process of redemption because God does not want to have a situation where the people cannot come into his presence. They have to stay down the mountain. And so Exodus 19 and 20 are tied together as the beginning of the redemption process because what he wants is a fellowship a relationship. He wants intimate communion with his people because he loves us and he wants us to know him and love him. And frank, frankly, your worship and the extent of your worship of God is based on how well you know him. The more you know him, the greater your worship. So he is going to do that. But right now at Sinai, they are a sinful people. They cannot come into his presence. So actually, when you get to uh, uh, Exodus 19 again, let's go down to verse 16. Verse 16 says, uh, So it came about on the third day when it was morning 
that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all of the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Can you picture this in your head? (laughs) Uh, uh, and Moses is going to give us a, a strong description. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Then uh, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Okay, now, uh, the people are absolutely terrified. That doesn't say that, but let's turn over to Exodus 20, and we'll find in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 18, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet And the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Then they said to Moses, uh, speak to us yourself. We will listen, but not to God. Uh, But let not God, I'm sorry, let not God speak to us or we will die. Uh, And so what's he doing? Separation because of they are a sinful people. Sinful people cannot come into the presence of a holy God. They are terrified at what they see, even from a distance. And the description I gave you would shake you and your socks as well. Uh, We like to think, well, I wouldn't have been that way. Oh, yes, you would have uh, had you seen what they saw. And Moses gives them the reason. Why is God frightening them in a sense? Uh, I don't think God's desire is to frighten them, but that's the result. Why is that? Moses tells us, In Exodus 20, verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. In other words, he is creating in the people of Israel a healthy sin. I'm sorry, (laughs) a a healthy sin. No such thing as a healthy sin. Anybody think of a healthy sin, let me know afterwards. A healthy respect for God, a fear of God, a fear that is a respecter of who he is. And it's the fear of God that keeps us from actually sinning a lot. Uh, And the fact of the matter is, no fear of God, you're going to have people who have no problem with sinning. Um, Now, what we've seen is the love of God reflected in what he's done. Now what we see on Sinai is the holiness of God. The love of God and now the holiness of God. And the love of God and the holiness of God are intertwined with each other. They are two sides of the same coin. And one of the things that is critical is that when we are thinking of and talking about the love of God and when we are looking at the exercise through us of the love of God, You've got to define the love of God in the context of his holiness. You can't just say, well, God loves me, and then you go out and do whatever you want. The truth of the matter is, people, folks, we are called to love one another, and Jesus calls us to love the sinner. 
and we love the sinner, and how we love the sinner is by presenting the gospel to them in order that they might see that they're lost and seek after salvation in Christ. We also love them by serving them. We do not love them by affirming their lifestyle. That violates God's holiness. You must define God's love in the context of God's holiness. And the churches today in our particular uh, culture, a number of churches, are failing to do that. They are not only trying to serve, they are affirming sinful lifestyles, and you cannot do that uh, because we have and serve a holy God. Okay, now, Mount Sinai then, on Mount Sinai, what is going to happen is God's going to give his law to Moses, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and the purpose of the Ten Commandments is because God is establishing a basis that will be, enable us to have a direct relationship with him. Now, granted, it's going to be a direct relationship uh, through Christ, but he's going to do this because he wants that relationship with us. And he is not doing it. He's not giving the Ten Commandments to see if they can keep them. He knows they can't keep them. He's giving them the Ten Commandments so that they can find out they can't keep them. What the Ten Commandments do is they reveal sin in our lives. And when we find out that we cannot keep the commandments of God, we then discover that nothing we can do can create a righteousness in us that will satisfy the holiness of God, which means you've got to have a Savior outside of yourself. You've got to be saved by someone else. You can't do it. Uh, now, interestingly enough, the Ten Commandments are a picture of God's love. They are a picture in the negative aspect of God's love. Uh, the example, for example, the, um, the love of God uh, contains two sections, if you will. There is the positive and there is the negative. In the positive, uh, Jesus answering a scribe in Mark 12 who said, what are the greatest commandments? Uh, what, are the, what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus said, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your, uh, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love God without necessarily loving your neighbor. That's the general positive statement of the love of God. The Ten Commandments are given in the negative. Uh, for example, I'll just summarize them to you. Uh, most of you know them. Uh, but notice first in the, in the positive, first is God, loving him with all your heart. Then you love your neighbor. Okay, now the Ten Commandments give you the specifics, but they are couched in the negative. So, for example, beginning in verse 4 of Exodus 20, verse 3, I'm sorry, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, commandment number 2, you shall not make for yourself graven images. In other words, that leads to idol worship. Uh, commandment number 3, uh, you shall not take the, Lord, uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
Uh, commandment number four, you will keep the Sabbath holy. Now, that appears to start positive, but then it goes on to say you can't do, can't do, can't do this, this, and this on the Sabbath. Then beginning with a cab, uh, commandment number five, honor your father and mother. And then the next five after that are you shall not, uh, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions, wife, Servant, property, you shall not covet. Okay, why is it in the negative? Because it causes the sinful nature to arise to rebel. Your sinful nature, and I'm going to ask for a show of hands as to who has one. That's it. Those that are not raising your hand, the commandment is do not lie. <laughs> okay. The sinful nature rises up in us when we are told you shall not do this. But in fact, the, the, that's why they are couched the way they are, to cause the sinful nature to rise up and rebel. But in fact, the Ten Commandments are a picture of God's love. If we go over to Romans 13, verse 8, uh, it says, uh, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You'll notice the same pattern. The positive side, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, uh, under that, the next thing after that, first love God, second love your neighbor. The Ten Commandments are set up the same way. The first four deal with God and our relationship to him. The next six deal with our relationship to our neighbors. Same thing. But they're in the negative in order that you might realize that you cannot keep them and that it raises the sin nature in you and you have to have a Savior if you are going to be saved. Now, uh, because sin always rebels, let's go over to Romans 3. And I'll just give you an example of what I'm talking about. Romans 3.19, without becoming weak in faith, um, let's see, I'm in 4. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So let every mouth, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be in, in justified in his sight. For though, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what we're talking about. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, that is the purpose of the law, to turn you to Christ when you realize you can't save yourself. And Paul says the same thing about himself in Romans 7. Uh, he says, beginning in verse 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? 
May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me a coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, he thought he was righteous because he hadn't been confronted with the law. Then it says, I thought uh, before I was apart from the law, I was alive. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. In other words, when I was confronted with the law, I thought I was okay. Confronted with the law, I realized I was dead meat. Now, that's a contemporary uh, example or summary of what Paul is saying. Now, one thing to keep in mind, and I've I've got to shut this down by 3 (laughs) o'clock. One thing to keep in mind, the law does not change. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 18, heaven and earth may pass away, but not one jot or tittle will pass away in the law. The law does not adjust and change with each culture. The law remains unchanged. Now, at one time, America accepted the law of God and accepted who God was and had a Judeo-Christian mindset. The Constitution is based on the biblical principles of the law. When a nation follows the law of God, it is a strong nation because fundamentally the law of God will create strong, healthy families. In the 60s, America turned its back on God and took, turned its back on God's law. Now, has anything happened since then? It has been a consistent path downwards toward the abyss. And just as you think it can't get any worse, it gets worse. And it gets darker and darker. And the church is not being as effective because we're supposed to be the light of the world against the darkness. And yet the darkness is continually increasing. Now, many of us do not see that life in America is living in the wilderness, but I can tell you that's changing. Now what we've got is lawlessness, violence, hatred, murder, sexual perversion of ever-increasing depths of of perversion, uh, deceit, suicide, all rapidly increasing. The average person in America who does not know Jesus is thirsty but doesn't know why. He sees the emptiness that all this is producing, but does not know what to do with it. When a person is evil, they dig their own pit. Psalm 7:15 says, "The evil, the wicked man deal, digs a pit and falls into it." Uh, what does that mean? It means that evil contains the seeds of its own destruction. Psalm 9:15 says, The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. You think we're in a pit? You know it because we turned our backs on God. What we desperately need 
is a church that is awake and many are asleep. A church that is awake, prepared to deal with its own sin and repent and the Holy Spirit coming down upon us. And let me give you a picture of what is common in the revivals of the past. Revivals in the past are characterized by Holy Ghost preaching in fire and anointing. And what that preaching normally does is it holds up the law of God to the people it's preaching to. In other words, not encouraging them to keep the law, but that they might see the law and see their sin. Because it's seeing their sin that causes them to repent. That's what Peter did at the end of his sermon in the Pentecost. He looked at his crowd of people and he said, you create, you crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, he accused them of violating the law. What did he in essence say? You murdered the Lord of glory. And what was the response? The Holy Spirit immediately poured out conviction on them and they cried out, men and brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and receive Christ and be baptized and you will be given the Holy Spirit. What will they be given? The living bread that came from heaven and the living water that when you drink it, you will never thirst again. And this is what people really want. They just don't know it. They are thirsty and they can find no water that satisfies. They try everything else, drugs, sex, whatever. They are thirsty, but it's the living water that comes with the bread of life. Okay, well, I'm going to have to quit. Um, but we need to get back as churches preaching sin. Because we need to hear it. <laughs> let, me, let me change that. You need to hear it. I don't. Um, here's the thing, folks. When people have genuinely been confronted and the Holy Spirit has gripped their heart, they don't accept Jesus. They flee to Jesus. I'm wondering if you're sitting here and you have never come to the knowledge of Christ or recognize the depth of your own sin. Uh, let me tell you, now is the day of salvation. You have no guarantee about tomorrow. You have no guarantee about this afternoon. If you pass away, and you will, we all do. This world is going to pass away. We're all going to pass away, but when we do, where are we when we do? If you're outside of Christ, you have not received the one who loved you and bore your sin on the cross and paid your judgment. If you have not received him, you are going to stand before God by yourself and give account for your sin. Now, trials are in two stages in, in the United States, for example. First is the stage of whether or not the person is guilty or innocent. If he is guilty, they go to the second stage, and that is the punishment to be inflicted. The trial has been ongoing. If you're outside of Jesus, you have already been found guilty. 
when you go to be before him, it's not going to be a trial of weighing your good deeds against bad deeds. You're going to be sentenced. You're going to the second phase. But if you are in Jesus, the verdict has already been given. Not guilty. So you will not stand before God alone and give account for your sin. So you've got a choice. If you die without him, it'll be Mount Sinai and the terror that they saw. But if you receive Jesus, flee to him, and begin to drink of that living water, when you die, it'll be Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, to the angels and to the saints and the righteous uh, cleansed in the blood of Jesus. Because you're not guilty, so you don't go to that second phase. Everybody with me on this? Okay, you need to start praying for your friends and relatives and neighbors. Of course, you need to start praying for revival. Not that you haven't. Don't misunderstand me. A lot of the saints are praying for revival. Because when God gets ready to bring judgment, he doesn't want to do that. And he starts looking for those who will intercede. He always looks for the intercessors before he brings judgment. Okay, we got to quit. Let's pray. It's 3 o'clock. I just violated one of the Ten Commandments. My favorite, somebody made the comment that when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, on stone in both arms and saw that Israel was sinning, he, in anger, broke them. Somebody said he's the first one to break all Ten Commandments at once. (laughs) Okay, but it's no joke. Even we struggle and fight. God allows us to remain in sinful bodies because he is increasing our strength and our maturity as we battle in the power of the Holy Spirit against our own sinful flesh. He's not doing that just to be difficult. He's doing it because he's using it. And when Jesus appears in glory, Colossians 3, you will appear with him in glory. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful grace that you show. And it is available to everyone, even at the last minute, as the thief on the cross said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise today. Lord, I pray for anyone that is out here who has not come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and who has drunk of the, not drunk of the living water. May your Holy Spirit move upon them and bring them to the knowledge of Christ. Bring them to the knowledge of their own sin that they may repent of it. And Lord, we pray for a powerful revival that sweeps this nation and goes on to sweep the rest of the Western world and even the entire world. And Lord, bring cleansing to your people. Awaken your people. Bring us into the knowledge of Christ anew. Bring us into the knowledge of sin that we may repent before him. And Lord, may your spirit be poured out like Pentecost all over again, this time times 10. And Lord, right now, we will give you honor, glory, majesty, dominion, power, and praise 
in this age and in the age to come. In the name of Jesus, we declare it. Amen.